Would you turn over to the book of Judges, chapter 6? You've heard those things that you know you're a redneck if, but here, someone wrote this, that you know if you're, you know if you are from a small town, if, and they gave some things about that. So you know you're from a small town when the city limit signs are both on the same post. The local motel six sleeps six. You know you're from a small town when you call a wrong number and they supply you with the correct one. You don't use turn signals because everyone knows where you're going anyway. The one block long Main Street dead ends in both directions. I'm told that actually happens in Juneau, Alaska. A night on the town takes exactly 11 minutes. Uh, By the way, if you're getting these jokes, you are probably from a small town. (laughs) The New Year's baby was born in October. You have to name six surrounding towns to explain where you're from. (laughs) Well, you can tell if you're from a small town or not. But whether you're from a small town, you if, if you've been from a small town, you will know that a small town, someone from a small town has a small town mentality. If you come from a big city, you have a big city mentality. And it's a definitely a different mentality, a different thing that, that takes on. If you, when you have a big city mentality or a suburb. Now, for some of us, if we leave here in the suburbs and we go to some of those small towns like I, they have out there in Oklahoma, Poto and, and things like that, you are interpreted to be from the big city because you're obviously not from a small town. But big city people can spot suburb people. Suburb people can spot small town people, but... When you're in a grow up in a small town, you don't view the world the same way. And you have certain limitations that are set upon you and that you see. You see that I can't get that. I can't go there. I can't become that. I can't do that. That's not for me. And all these different things, all these limitations that come up. Today we're going to be talking about thresholds in our series on faithfulness. Thresholds. We're picking up with some things we talked about last week too, with the dropping the ball and getting the ball and what you do with the ball and things like that. But here, if you look at thresholds, I looked this word up in the dictionary. The word thresholds is defined as the place or point of beginning, the outset. The place or point of beginning or the outset. Some other definitions put it this way. The point that must be exceeded to begin producing a given effect or result or to elicit a response. How many of you have heard the term a low threshold of pain? Well, you can have pain in your body and it not really affect you until it hits that threshold. Once it hits that threshold, what happens to you? You begin to react to that pain. That pain begins to overcome you and it begins to change your behavior and the the things that you do. If you have a low threshold of some things, then when that thing passes that threshold, it it affects you. You know, people that are, are long-distance swimmers and can swim for a long time. Well, they can swim for a mile, two miles, and it does not affect them. Some of us get in there and 100 yards, we're done. That's all, that, that's all we can do. That's our threshold. But everybody has a different threshold. And how do you raise that threshold? You have to push some things. You have to get yourself beyond that comfort zone. If all you ever swim is 100 yards, that's all you're ever going to probably do. Maybe you can go 150 on a good day. But there's thresholds that we have. How many of you have driven a car? For long, long periods of time. And I know the first time I, I did it, I had my license for only a, not even a year, not even a year, not even a, six months. 
and made the, the drive from Tulsa, Oklahoma to Pennsylvania. And uh, my threshold wasn't the same. I actually pulled over after only uh, uh, about four or 500 miles. And that was about it. And, and now, you know, I can go a whole lot further. The, the longest I've been, I've been driving a lot longer. And I think I told you the story before, but I was going down to Tulsa when I was single with a friend of mine. And this particular friend did not have a very good driving record. And my car was a new car. And he didn't have a very good driving record. So I was motivated. And I drove from here in Pennsylvania all the way out to 100 miles beyond St. Louis, Missouri. That's the longest I've ever driven one without uh, stopping and breaking. I mean, we, we broke for, for dinner and for uh, bathroom stuff and things like that. But my threshold had increased. You don't increase your threshold until you push yourself beyond your comfort zone. Until you get yourself beyond what you're used to. People who drop the ball, drop the ball because they got beyond their threshold. And something began to occur in their life that caused a response. The place or point of beginning, the outset. Now, we may think, well, the place or the point of beginning in which I start something, but I'm looking at this as the place or the point of beginning in which you stop something. What made you stop the thing that you were doing? You hit a threshold. You hit a place of stopping for you for the good thing and a place of starting for the bad, for the negative, and you drop that thing. Another definition, put it this way. The level or point at which you start to experience something or at which something starts to happen. And I put some things in here in your outline for you to fill out and you can drive it home. I just put one natural thing. The rest of them are spiritual, but here's the natural one. There is a point of disorganization that causes organization to begin. Isn't that right? Isn't there a point in your house where the things are going on, where the, the level of disorganization hits and now something has to begin. Haven't you gone into your son's room, your daughter's room, and seen the point of disorganization and demanded that organization begin? But there's a threshold that you hit. You were upset with it up to a point, And you would say, go in there and clean up. And they clean up some. But you hit a point. You hit a threshold. In which all of a sudden, uh uh we're not taking disobedience anymore. You're getting in there and you're going to do that thing. You're going to get that thing accomplished. When you've told your son or your daughter, do this, and they don't do it, and they don't do it, and they don't do it, don't you have a threshold for which you immediately demand obedience? There's a point of disorganization that causes organization to begin. There's a point of dirtiness that causes cleanliness to begin. Isn't that right? Go home, take a look at your, your floors in your house. I mean... You'd like them to be all clean all the time. Wouldn't we all like them to be all clean all the time? But there's a lot of things demanding your time. And so when you see it only mildly dirty, well, I'm going to put my time and my effort in over here, and that doesn't quite demand the attention. But all of a sudden, you come in, you look at it, oh, I cannot take this anymore, and you have gone beyond your threshold, and dirtiness stops, and cleanliness begins. Well, let's take it over into the spiritual area. There is a point in our lives where obedience stops and disobedience begins. There's a point in your life where you can obey what the Word of God says to do. You can obey what God has commanded you to do up to a point. And then disobedience begins. We've heard it said before. heard stories. People, they were tithers. They tithed on, their, on $10,000 they made a year. 
Made $10,000 a year, tied on that. As they grew, got to $20,000. Still tied on that. Got to $50,000. Didn't quite tithe all the way 10%, but gave quite a bit of it. Uh, maybe eight, something like that. And they got up to 100000 Well, now the checks looks to be too big, and so then they start cutting back, and now they're only giving 5%. You hit a threshold, didn't you? Not you, other, other people, of course. But there's a point in our lives where obedience stops and disobedience begins for all kinds of reasons. Let me give you three reasons why. I'll give you a cover of these rest of these in a minute. But there's three reasons that I came up with, and you could probably put some thought to it and come up with some other ones. I just wrote three of them down here. Three reasons that cause you to move from disorganization to organization or to move from obedience to disobedience or so forth. First off, time is one. When you look at uh, that house and it's disorganized, but it hasn't quite hit that threshold, and you have only a certain amount of time. Some of you, you work eight hours in the day. You have to cook and, and uh, shop and do the different things that have to get done. And you've only got so much time to do that. So time is a limiter. I would like to put more organization into that right now. But there's a time factor and I just can't do that. The resources. Sometimes the reason that you don't do it is because you, you don't have the resources. I'd mop the floor, but I can't afford to mop. I'd, I'd clean up that, but I can't afford cleaning, cleaning supplies or whatever it might be. So there's uh, resources that can come into, into play. And the other one is effort. I'd like to do that, but I'm just tired. I just don't want to. But then it hits that threshold, it hits that point, and you say, I can't take it anymore, and it moves you to stop inacting and begin to act. So it stops one thing and starts another. There's a point where faith stops and doubt begins. There's a place in your, in your life, folks, where you are walking in faith. You are doing fine. You are do, you're doing what you need to in faith. You are believing God. You are getting the things you need done. But then all of a sudden, faith stops and doubt begins. You have faith for the $5 bills. You have faith for the $10 bills. You've worked your way up to have faith for the $50 bills. And a $100 bill, when it comes in the mail, stretches you a little bit. But hey, you're there for it. And you, but all of a sudden, the $200 bill came in. And now we went from faith to doubt. Oh, I think this one's going to take us down. And then you built your faith up and now you have $200 faith and then a $500 bill comes in. And you have faith for that. And then pretty soon a $1,000 bill comes in. I mean, we all know we went through the stages of life. When we were a teenager, our biggest bill was going to the 7-Eleven and buying three candy bars. Right? You had to have money to have... Faith to go down there and buy three because if you're a boy, you didn't go down there and buy one. Maybe you girls did. We boys, we didn't go buy one. We're making the trip. We're buying three because we're eating two of them on the way home. <laughs> so you, you got to get a few of them. So you got to have money for that. So you get to a place where, you, where that doesn't stretch you so much. Now you have bike faith. You got to buy a new bike or improve your bike or, or something like that. Or for some boys, it's skateboard faith. They gotta buy a new skateboard or, or things like that. But that's that's the biggest thing you have. Hundred dollar bill, two hundred dollar bill. You gotta save up for that and get that ready. It's not life or death. But you gotta get yourself ready for it. And then you you grow up and you get into college, and now you have to have book money faith. Buying those books, getting the money for that. And then after you get out of college, and now it's time to get an apartment, now you have an apartment, now you have to have rent faith. And then electric faith. And clothing faith. And food faith. And all these things that come up. And then you get married. And now you need insurance faith. 
and all the other things that come up with 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 that. And and the expenses just get bigger. I mean, when you all when you all started out, I know when I started out, my rent was I think two hundred and fifty dollars a month. That's not that's not so bad. When I uh, I lived around here for a while, and the one time I went back to Tulsa for a year, I was so used to paying rent prices that were up here that uh, and by that point I was paying more than two hundred fifty dollars for for rent. When I went on down there, and I saw how cheap the rent was, because you could rent a place down there at the, at the time that I was, this is twenty some years ago, a um, hundred and sixty five dollars a month, you could rent a one bedroom apartment. Now that's pretty cheap. I th- I th- saw that and I says. Man, I can do better than that. And I did. I rented an apartment for $300 a month. It was one of the ritziest apartments in the in the land for a one-bedroom place. It was it was one of the best of the best in Tulsa. Had a river view, fireplace, air conditioning, laundry facilities in the apartment. Wall-to-wall carpeting. French doors in the living room, French doors in the bedroom. That led out to a beautiful porch that you could see and watch the river all that you wanted to. Glory to God. <laughs> I mean, that was nice. No more laundromats. But $300, $300 a month. It's twice what other people were paying. But you, you got used to paying stuff up here. That didn't seem like it was such a big deal. But then, of course, you have an Oklahoma job. <laughs> it's not... Not quite the same job that you had up here, but um, anyway, things went on. But then you get on up here, and, and then you know you moved into a place five hundred, eight hundred, a thousand dollars. Then you moved on from there fifteen hundred. Hmm. Things got to be high, so your your faith had to keep on growing because all of a sudden you could get hit with one of those big bills and it could throw you off, and you'd go from faith from faith into doubt. Because there's a point where faith stops and doubt begins. There's a point where faithfulness stops and unfaithfulness begins. How many of you are faithful up to a point? You're faithful, you're faithful until people disappoint you. You're faithful, you're faithful until another commitment comes up. Getting quiet. We have limits on the thing. We're faithful until something happens. And how many of you know there is a good reason why you moved from the place of being faithful to the place of being unfaithful? And you're right for doing so. But you think so. (laughs) You think you're right, don't you? You wouldn't have done it if you didn't think you were right. There's a reason why you moved from faithfulness into unfaithfulness, but you feel totally justified doing it. There is a reason. There's something that hits your threshold and you're okay doing it this way. You're okay to move from faith into doubt. There is a point where selflessness stops and selfishness begins. In everyone's life, there is a point where selflessness stops and selfishness begins. I cannot care about myself, not care about myself, not care about myself. Then all of a sudden, I hit something. Then what about me? What am I going to get? There's a threshold that you hit there. There's a point where we struggle to hear the voice of God. How many of you can hear the voice of God just fine on some things, but then you have certain spots in your life that all of a sudden, I, I don't, am I hearing from God? Is this really God saying this? There's a threshold that you have that you have to get beyond. 
There's a point where we look to change our understanding of, the, of God's Word. Where I want to grow. But it's beyond the threshold that I have. You should, as a, as a standard part of your life, have questions you don't have answers yet about the Word of God. If you do not have answers to all of... If you have answers to all your questions, you're just not studying. Because study should produce questions. And questions produce answers. Thank God as you grow, you're asking questions you didn't even understand before. You didn't even know those questions existed before. But you're understanding them now. You're growing in that. You're increasing your threshold. You're raising that up. But in order to get there, you have to get out of your comfort zone. Because you're going to hit that area of thresh, that, that higher threshold. We talked about the threshold of pain. How do you increase your threshold of pain? Suffer more pain. That's about it. That's about all you can do. Now, generally, boys have a different threshold of pain than girls do. Generally. Especially little ones. Little boys, how many times have your, has your little boy come in from playing and he's bleeding somewhere? And your mom, you pick up on it. You're bleeding. Oh, yeah? How'd you do that? I don't know. How many times have you seen that? I don't know how many times I told that to my mom. I'm coming in, you're bleeding. Oh, well. It, it, and it starts, of course, sometimes, too, the thing that you're facing, the thing that you want to do, the thing that pain might keep you from doing, changes your threshold of pain. Because little boys can have one threshold of pain at 7 a.m. in the morning when it's time to go to school and another one at 3.30 in the afternoon when it's time to go out and play. Isn't that right? <laughs> Mm. Yeah, that can, that can change a little bit what we're motivated to go out there and do, the effort we want to put in. But if I'm going to change my threshold, I've got to go through some stuff. I've got to get that comfort level pushed, pushed up a little higher. You know, if you swim 100 meters, you've got to get comfortable swimming 200 meters. If you swim 200 meters, you get comfortable swimming 500 meters. You know, you didn't just jump out in the pool and become like Michael Phelps and swim all those miles and eat all those calories and do all the other stuff that's, that's going on. You didn't just get into that all. There's a point where we look to change our understanding of God's Word. But there's a point in our life where we hit that threshold. And a choice is made. Something is going to stop for something else to begin. This is the point where we drop the ball. That's when we drop the ball. If you are going to drop the ball, generally it is because you have hit a threshold in your life. Something has met you. There is resistance. And you have not passed, overcome, gone through that resistance before. How many of you consider yourself to be good students when you're going through school? But was there not a subject or two that you could sit in and you could say, Oh, man. Uh, and it challenged you. You're a good student. You know how to read and study and take notes and do all the things to pass all the tests. But you hit, you found this course. Mm, that course challenged you. You just weren't so sure. You, you dropped the ball. Instead of getting A's and B's, you're struggling to get a D. Just a, uh, you, you, You'll be satisfied with a D too. You've dropped your expectation. All I want to do is survive this class. Just get out of this thing and, and, and get this going. Or you were given a job. And that job challenged you. That job, I mean, I, uh, for me, when I was working, if you gave me a job, I wanted to see how fast I could get it done. And if I got it done in 30 minutes today, I want to get it done in 28 minutes tomorrow. 
and I time it. And then I want to get it done in 26 minutes. And I just keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. Then I had this job. I left the job I liked, took this job that was down in Jakentown that I didn't know at the time, but I did not like this job. It is to this day the only job I ever took that I never fell in love with, that I never enjoyed. Never one time did. And, and I'd be in there and i just work the way that I did and they would give me these, these things. It was a dental factory. They were making dental equipment. And it was very tedious work. It was very uh, monotonous work. And they'd sit you down on a bench and you had to put the lead into the containers and, or whatever it was going to be you had to do. And so they'd give me something to do and I'd get it, I'd get it done fast. And they'd give me something else to do and I'd get it done fast. And they'd give me something else to do and I'd get it done fast. And finally, I frustrated the boss. The boss was a real good friend of my parents and I just frustrated the boss. And he turned to his assistant, who was his son, and he said, will you give him something to do that will take him longer? <laughs> and he did. He gave me a job to do that took me days, days to get it done. I would come in in the morning and just work on this one job and leave and it still is not done. And come in the next day and work on just that one job and leave and it's still not done. And it just, it sucked the life out of me. I didn't want to go to work. I wasn't necessarily thrilled about going to work anyway, but I didn't want to go to work. I didn't want to get that thing done. I just was, oh, I was, I was done with that. That, hit, that was my threshold. That was something I did not, was not used to working through. Didn't want to, I did finally get it done and we went on to some other things, but it just wore me out so much. I eventually gave my notice and said, I'm going back to my old job. Paid me less money. I had a whole lot more fun though. And enjoyed that. But what causes you to drop the ball? There is something out there. There is a threshold of something that causes you to drop the ball. Your threshold might be expectations of people. How many have ever dropped the ball because people let you down? How many have ever dropped the ball because you were disappointed? Because you got frustrated? Because somebody got you angry? Because somebody didn't come through? How many of you are late for work because other people are late for work? You base your, your, your thing on that. How many of you are diligent or as diligent at work or whatever it is you do as other people are diligent? And you can slack off to their level. Because that's the threshold that you live in. That's the that's this area that you're at. But you're not called to live according to the world's thresholds. You're called to create God's threshold wherever you are. And you should do it. In your work, you should create it there. In your home, we should create it there. You should create it certainly in church and the things you do for God. But whatever it is you're doing, you should create that threshold. You should never be satisfied with where you're at. You should say, Father God, I can do better. I can get less frustrated. I can get less angry. I can become more efficient. I can do this better. I can do this with greater effect. Whatever it might be, you can do something better. How many of you can say that, that and on your job, you can do your job better than you're doing it now? Rest of your liars. <laughs> Come on. I, don't, I didn't say that there's, there's no one better at your job. You may be the best at your job that there is. But you can still be better. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Go to God. God, how can I be better at that? How can I get that going better? There's a way that you can get it going better. But constantly, we compare ourselves to other people. I did that or some jobs that I really enjoyed. I compared myself to other people and I'm doing better than they are. I'm not doing what they're doing. I'm doing better here. 
And you can feel satisfied with that because you compare yourself to, to other people. Don't do it. Don't do it. Well, we want to see how thresholds are formed in our life. How do these thresholds get formed and what are we going to do about them? Turn over to Judges chapter 6. This is a story y'all know. Y'all know I don't like this guy a whole lot, but he made the Hall of Fame, Hall of, Fame of Faith. And we'll look at the, the things that are going on. But we're going to pick up at verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the turbine tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, while he was, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Now, the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? Jesus. When you see the angel of the Lord mentioned in the Old Testament, not just the angel, but the angel of the Lord, it is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. He is the only angel that accepts worship. So here we have Gideon meeting Jesus Christ. How many of y'all want to be Gideon right now? <laughs> Meet Jesus face to face? Woo, that'd be good. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, Jesus has a whole different view of Gideon than I do. I don't view Gideon as a mighty man of valor. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, whatever it might be. But thank God that we are not limited to the view that other people have of us. Other people might not view you all that good either. So what? What's God say yet? So, he, so the Lord comes up to Gideon and says, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Oh, how many people ask that question? If God is real, why does all this bad stuff go on? If God is God, how come children are dying? Why is there war? Why is there famine? How many have ever heard those questions? Well, it's the same thing they ask in the Old Testament. Gideon is asking it here. But he didn't say that the Lord was with them. Who did he say the Lord was with? The angel of the Lord. The Lord is with you. Now, that was too hard for Gideon to hear. That was beyond Gideon's threshold. He cannot hear that. And so what he does is he reinterprets that and spits it out differently. And you'll see this more as we go on through. But look at his answer. Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us. See, it's a whole lot easier to say the Lord is with us than to say the Lord is with me. This doesn't quite sound right. I mean, who am I that the Lord would be with me? Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about? Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? He's not sending them. He's sending who? Gideon. He is with not them, but Gideon. I am with you. I am sending you. So God is very much personalizing this. So he said to him, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So now you see why it's so hard for him to hear these things, because he sees himself as so small. He sees himself as so small. 
I am the least. My clan is the weakest. I am the least. Well, if you view yourself as being from the weakest clan, the weakest family, and you are the least in that family, what do you think of yourself? Now, how many of you would want to say that this is the people that are around Gideon? It's their fault. They told him bad things. They told him he was nothing. They told him this, that, and the other thing. How many of you want to blame all the folks around them? Then jump in with society that we live in now because everybody wants to say you're a product of your environment. And as long as you hide behind that, you will not break out of your threshold. Quit it. You are the product of what you believe, not what other people say about you. So what do you believe about yourself? If you don't believe that, get back into the Word of God and read it some more. Stop blaming other people for why you're held down. No one can hold you down if you, won't, if you don't let them hold you down. Gideon let these people hold him down. He let them. They may have said nasty things. They may have said bad things. They may have disbelieved in him. They may have done all that. But he let them. Now, Joseph, how many know that Joseph had people around him saying bad things about him? Putting him down. Who are you to have these kind of dreams? Does it hold Joseph down? It doesn't. He keeps on going. How about Jesus? His brothers and sisters, none of them were believers. You know why? They didn't like Jesus a whole lot. I'm sure he was viewed as the favorite son. I mean, Jesus never does anything wrong. Mom and dad are always punishing us. They never punish Jesus. He's not perfect, you know. I'm sure Jesus got some abuse from family members. He certainly got abuse when he came home and the friends and neighbors saw him. But he didn't let that hold him back. But Gideon's letting this kind of stuff hold him back. I don't care who it is that spoke words over you. Shake them off. They're only going to affect you as long as you hang on to them. How many of you have heard the words of people who said, you are nothing, you will become nothing. You will never be anything of significance. And we believe it. Because you believe it, you're held down. Your threshold is set not because of what people have said to you, but because of what you believed people said about you. Because you see, people in your life have said nasty things about you, but God has said good things. The problem is not what people have said. The problem is what you believed. Because Gideon had people saying bad things about him. But right now, he has the Lord Jesus Christ. God himself saying of him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And if you understand Gideon's life up to this point, I don't know how God could say that. But he looked at who he was and who he could become. God looks at who you are and who you can become. And he says things of you. He has said many a thing to you in his word. But because of your thresholds, you have chosen to disbelieve what the word has said and to believe what people have said. I had enough people when I was younger saying nasty things. It wasn't my parents. It wasn't folks that were close to me that way. But lots of kids in school, lots of situations... People said all manner of evil and nastiness about me, to me. Made all sorts of threats. I know what all that's like. And I know what it's like to believe it and to buy into it. Because I bought into it for a long time. So he goes on. 
And the Lord said, verse 14, to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that, is, that it is you who's talked with me. How many of you are going to be that bold? Lord Jesus Christ standing in front of you, God Himself. Say, oh, I just want to make sure that what you're saying is really true. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat, unleavened bread from an FF flour. The meat he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under the turban tree and presented them. Now, I'm not sure exactly what all goes on with this thing, but I'm thinking from what this sounds like that Gideon leaves the Lord Jesus Christ to sit under a tree while he goes inside, gets some meat, cooks it up, makes some bread, cooks it up, and then brings it all out. Now, put yourself in, your, in Gideon's position. How many of you, if the Lord Jesus Christ is there before you, the Lord Jesus Christ, God Himself, is standing before you, and will you wait here while I go make some food? And you go in and you make, I mean, it's nice to do something good for God, but you're leaving Him out there. I'm at least saying, come with me. And the whole thing, the whole reason you're doing this is because you doubt that it's who He is. He wants a sign. So He says, wait here, I'm going to go get some stuff. So Gideon went in, prepared the stuff. In verse 20, Then the angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on the rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. I mean, why did he just bring the raw stuff? Why in the world go through all that trouble to cook all this, keep him waiting, he's just going to burn it up anyway. <laughs> now, this is, this is how good Gideon is. Are you ready for this? I love this next verse. Now, Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. He is sharp as a tack, isn't he? <laughs> Nothing gets by this boy. Mm. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it is still in Ophrah of the Abirzrites. Now it came to pass the same night the Lord said to him, Take your father's young, young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal, that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bowl and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. So the Lord comes over later on that night and he says, tear this thing down. Apparently, he doesn't do it that night. He goes out and he makes the preparations. He gets some other people involved. Who does the Lord say to go out there and do this? Gideon. He calls him a mighty man of valor. And he says, go out there and do it. Now, I don't know. Gideon is just full of contradictions. First off, if you're afraid of your father's house, why do you take ten servants from the father's house? 
The best kept secret is one that you keep yourself. If you tell no one, no one else can tell anyone else. It will stay with you. The problem with secrets is you tell someone else. Then that person tells another. Then that person tells another. And pretty soon it's all over the place. If you want something to be a secret, if he's truly afraid of his father's house, if he's truly afraid of the men in the city, he should tell no one. Just go in there and do it himself. Why take the ten guys? But the reason he did it was not because God instructed him to take ten servants. It's not because God instructed him to do it at nighttime. The reason is because he feared. God had asked him to do something that was beyond his fear threshold. And he feared. Now, to his credit, he did it. But it did take the angel of the Lord showing up, burning up the sacrifice to get it done. But he does do it. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image and the and that was beside it, was cut down. And the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day he called him Jerubabel, I'm sorry, Jerubel, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east gathered together, and they crossed over and engaged or encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abizrites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. So he gets bold, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, he gets bold, and he calls out all these people. Doesn't it sound like Gideon is turning the corner? Doesn't it sound like Gideon is getting ready? He is going to become the mighty man of valor that God said he was. And then we have verse 36. So God said, so Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Dear Lord, never begin a prayer that way. If you will do as you said. God, if you will really come through in your promises as you said in your word, then see you're already in trouble. Just know if you start out a prayer like that, it's already done. It's, you already finished it. It's over. Don't do it. If you will save Israel by my hand, did he not say, I will? Boy, don't call God into doubt. Don't, don't stand there before God and say, I don't think you're going to do what you said. Look, I shall put a, a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so when he rose early in the next morning and squeezed the fleece together. He wrung the dew out of the fleece a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to, said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. What he's thinking is, you know what? I, should have, I said this the wrong way. What I should have said was this, because it may have just dewed there. 
That happens all the time, doesn't it? How many times have you gone out and it just snowed on your car? Nowhere else. Just snowed on your car. That is it. Your, your, the other car, the second car, it's fine. The sidewalk, no problem. The driveway, no snow. Just your car. How many times have you seen that happen? How many times has it rained and just rained in one square little area? No other place did it rain. Just that one little area. That's all that it did. But he's thinking this because he's past his threshold. Past your threshold, all kinds of stuff happens. So he's thinking, man, maybe God didn't ask me to do this. We've already had the sacrifice burn up. Now, God didn't say he would do that for him, but he just said, I want you to do this. And so the sacrifice is already burned up. Right in front of him. Got him scared. But, you know, that was yesterday. Day before, whenever it was. This is today. So the first day, well, we got the, the fleece going on. Eh, it may just have do just in the one area. So he says, I'm going to ask you with this one more time. Just let it do everywhere else, but the fleece is going to be dry. And God did so the, that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. Now, surely he's done doubting God at this point, wouldn't you say? I mean, if you had the whole sacrifice burn up in front of you, and then it dewed on the fleece, and then it dewed all around except on the fleece, how many of you are ready to go wherever God says to go, do whatever God says to do? You are ready to go. Not Gideon. Then Jer- Jeroboam, that is Gideon, I guess we're going by the new name now, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, that makes sense. You can understand that. They're not speaking anything about Gideon, talking about Israel, and surely Israel would have probably done that. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 people returned and 10,000 remained. 22,000 people returned and 10,000 remained. How many showed up then? 32,000 people. Can you imagine Gideon, as weak as we've seen that he is, puts out a call and 32,000 people followed him. That's pretty good. I don't know exactly how he got him to do it, but somehow he, he did. He got him to get there. 32,000. So 22,000 going home. He says, all right, how many of you guys are afraid? So 10,000 of the 32,000 are not afraid. Maybe they're too stupid to be afraid. I don't know what it is, but if you're going against this army of the Midianites, how many of you would be afraid if you had 32,000 people? So now you've got 10,000. How many of those 10,000 want to say, well, I wasn't afraid before, but now, now I am. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them, test them for you there. Then it will be that, that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And if remember I say to you, this one shall not go, the same will not go. Now, if you're Gideon and you just lost 22,000 followers. 22,000 in your army. 
How many of you are, are ready to go up to God? Because, I mean, he's been pretty, go, pretty bold with God so far. How many of you are ready to go up to God and say, God, you are messing with my head? <laughs> what do you mean I got too many? I now I only have 10,000. And now you say I still have too many? I have 10,000. And I have too many? But apparently, if he argues, we don't have it in here. And they put all the other arguments in there. So I'm going to have to say that he probably didn't argue. He just went on down there and did it. Fresh off those fleeces. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who's, who gets down on the knees to drink. And the number of those who lap putting their hand, hand to their mouth was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. So out of 10,000, 9,700 are sent home. 22,000 sent home in the first. 9,700 sent home after that. He gathered up. How many of you, if you're getting your thinking, I gathered up 32,000 warriors for you. And you sent all but 300 of them home. That's like 1%. I mean, God's just making it hard for Gideon. And the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provisions and the trumpets in their hands and he sent away all the rest of the Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Put yourself in the position, though, of one of the 300. Now, this is not the group of 300 that the Greeks had. These are just 300. The Greeks had 300 well-trained. Well, I mean, they, they were good. These guys are just, they're just 300 people. Just happened to be 300. And uh, nothing really striking about them. They're not like David's mighty men, anything like that. They're just 300 guys. If you're one of the 300, how many of you are saying, you know, I came along here. We had 32,000. You sent 22,000 home. I wasn't all on board with that, but I stayed anyway. Now you sent 9,700 others on home because they didn't drink water right. I got, I'm with 300. I was on board here even with the 10,000. But 300? 300? Come on. How many of you, are, if you're in that 300, are asking some questions? You have gotten beyond your threshold. And it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number, as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And you have how many guys? We did have 32. We cut it down to 10. And now we have 300. They, even with 32, they had a whole lot more than what you got. They probably had more camels. Because you can count 32,000. Apparently, you can't count as many camels as they had. Where do we leave off? 13. Then his companion answered and said, This is, well, it's, uh, I'm sorry, 
Got to go one more up. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. And he said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. And it came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. How in the world did this man know this? How in the world did he know Gideon? How did he know Gideon's dad? And how do you know that this represented Gideon coming in and wiping them out? I'd like to meet this guy. I bet you we're going to meet him when we get up there anyway because anybody who's going to do this probably has to have some kind of fear of God. But if not, uh, I won't lose any sleep over it. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and interpretation that he worshipped, he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp into Midian into your hand. So we're back in faith now. Glory to God, we're out of that fear. Back in faith. Took another dream and so forth. But then he delivered the 300 men into three companies. So he's not happy with the 300 men. This is too many in one company. Let's fit them up into three companies and divide them up even more. And he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers. And torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look, look at me and do likewise. Watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, and I and all who are with me, then you also blow the, blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle. Watch. Just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three com companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers they had and the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hand for blowing. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. And the three hundred blew the trumpets. The Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth. Acacia, toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Mahala, and Tabath. And the men of Israel gathered together from Nephtali, Asher, and all Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth-berah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb in the rock of Oreb and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought to the, the heads of Oreb and Zeb to the Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. So a great victory was won and they continued to go on through and to pursue and to, to beat these guys up. But... Amazing stuff. It's amazing to me how Gideon is out of faith and God brings him up into faith. And then he drifts out of faith and God brings him up into faith. And he drifts out of faith and God brings him up into faith. And they finally get it accomplished and Gideon stays in faith for a couple of days in his life and makes the Hall of Fame. Because he wasn't in faith before this and after this he doesn't stay in faith. It's terrible the things that he does after this. It's even terrible, more terrible what Israel does to the sons of Gideon after all this is, is done. But you can go on through and you can read the rest of the stories if you want to hear that. So how do thresholds get formed here? First off, the over-under. We put it under here. Listening to what others say over what God says. 
And Gideon listened to what others said over what God said. You have got to get to the place that every person who has been in your life, whether it was a parent, whether it was a teacher, whether it was friends, whether it was peers, whether, whoever it was in your life, and they spoke evil things to you, they said things to you, put you down, whatever it might be, you have got to shake that off. Don't go around trying to get delivered from it. That's not. That's going to do nothing but put your focus on it. Get it out of your head. Stop meditating on it. What should you meditate on instead? What has the Lord said about you? There's some general things the Lord has said about you. There's some specific things the Lord has said to you. Meditate on those things. Listen to what others say over what God says. People call you a failure. People call you you're not going to succeed. People say, don't listen. Listen to what God says. Yield to my flesh over my spirit. You've got to stop yielding to your flesh over your spirit. That will get you into a threshold. A threshold that's against the things of God. Yielding to my flesh over my spirit. When your flesh says, I want this, I want to do this, I don't like that, I'm mad, I'm angry, I got hurt. That's yielding to your flesh. It's not yielding to your spirit. You'll justify it and say that it's your spirit. I'm spiritually indignant or whatever it might be. But stop yielding to your flesh over your spirit. Don't do it. Brother Hagin used to teach us about this story with Gideon about fleeces. He said the only time he ever missed God and really got hurt on it was when he put a fleece before God. We are never commanded. If you ever put a fleece before God, folks, you miss God. That's the, we are not called to do fleeces. But Gideon did. It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible by a man who's dominated by fear and inferiority, who does things that God didn't tell him to do and puts situations before God that God didn't ask him to put before him and then expects God to come through with an answer. Does that sound good to you? Has, God, has anyone else ever put a fleece before God? Or something along those lines. Brother Hagin used to tell us, I put a fleece before God and got fleeced. <laughs> Don't do it. You're not told in the New Testament put fleeces before God. Well, God, if this happens, then I'll go ahead and do that. Hear from the Word of God. Hear from the Spirit of God. Stop, stop trying to substitute how you're supposed to hear. It's a whole lot nicer to put the fleece out and let the dude take care of the thing for you. But that's not what we're called to do. Don't do it. Don't mess with it. Don't yield to your flesh. Listen to your spirit. Putting what I feel under what I know. You've got to put what you feel under what you know to do. How many times have you felt one thing, but the Word of God told you to do something else? Or the Spirit of God told you to do something else? But I feel this, and when you're feeling it pretty strong, how many of you want to go with the feeling instead of what God told you to do? What God said to do? How many of you have gone into a thing, a time in your life, you went through a phase, and you said, Father God, I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. every morning and pray for an hour. Not saying I'm doing that for the rest of my life, but for whatever time, week, two weeks, month, two months, whatever time it was going to be, I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. and pray for an hour. And you get up the first day, 5 a.m., no problem, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, but after a while it starts to get a little old. You're not necessarily seeing the great things coming from it that you were expecting. And so sixth, seventh, eighth day, somewhere around there, you begin to say, it's 5 o'clock, my flesh is tired. God, I was out helping people, talking to people on the phone yesterday, helping you out, ministering to people here, doing this, doing that. I'm just kind of tired this morning. I'm not going to do it. Hit your, you're listening to your flesh over your spirit. 
You're listening to what you feel over what you know. Don't listen to what you feel over what you know. Do what you know. Not what you feel. I've told you this before, even about sickness. We are not in it. We never have taught you here in this church. I've never been taught it myself to deny circumstances, to deny situations, to deny that you're sick, to go around sneezing and coughing. I'm not sick. Never taught you to do that. Don't have to deny what you're in. But you don't have to acknowledge it the way some people do. And you don't have to go around and say, well, I just have symptoms. I don't know. I'd be fine with being sick if it weren't for the symptoms. <laughs> I mean, that right? I could be sick every day of my life. If it weren't for the symptoms, I wouldn't care. It's the symptoms that cause you the problems, isn't it? The sneezing, the runny nose, the headaches, all the other stuff that come along with it. We want to get rid of those things. But see, so you wake up and you don't, oh, I don't feel good. What's the Word of God says? The Word of God says, I'm healed. But I don't feel healed right now. I'm just going to lay here and just, just lay here. Because you want to go by what you feel. Now, I know this isn't popular, this isn't all that fun to say and fun to do, but sometimes you've got to grab yourself by the back of the neck, pull yourself up out of bed and say, I don't care how you feel, body. The Word of God says you are healed. Move yourself on. I can't do that. Well, you've hit your threshold. There's a threshold there that's keeping you from it. You can either get past it or you can not. Whatever you want to do. But stop giving in to what you feel. Put what, you, what I feel under what I know. Subject what I fear under what I believe. Gideon, how many times did he say, I'm afraid, I'm, uh, I'm fear. God said, if you still fear, go and do this. So he went and did it. Subject what I fear under what I believe. Because how many of you have gotten news in the natural that's not good? And it stirs up fear. You don't need that. Well, thresholds can get formed. And you, but you can stop it. Yield to these things. You'll form thresholds. You'll solidify those thresholds. Go against it. You can beat them. You can get past them. You can raise the threshold in your life. On Judges chapter 7, we saw this to get to beyond the, the threshold. First off, get ready. New levels involve some challenges. If you want to move your threshold, wherever it might be, you might want to move your threshold of understanding of the Word of God. You might move, you move your threshold for what you can believe financially, what you can believe in the area of healing. You might want to move your threshold for how you minister in the things of God. Whatever it might be, get ready because new levels involve some challenges. If you want to move that threshold, it's going to involve some challenges. How many of you have a threshold? We picked on this before, so we'll pick on it again. How many of you have a threshold in your car of how dirty you let it get? And then once it gets beyond that level of dirty, how many of you just get you so mad you go out and you clean the whole thing out? Clean it all out, vacuum it all out. It is now spick and span. How long does it take to get back to the place it was before? It doesn't take too, too long, does it? If you want to change that and you want to say, I, don't, I am not content with that level of that threshold of my car or my house or whatever it is that you do, that you have. I am not content with it. I want to change that. How many of you all know that takes great effort? That is not easy to do. 
because I, am, I have got myself accustomed that this certain amount of dirtiness, this certain amount of unorganization is okay. We get beyond it, I have to do something about it. But this level is okay. You have gotten to a point where certain thresholds, certain spiritual thresholds are okay in your life. And you're okay with it. It's okay that I get mad at so-and-so. It's okay that I get angry. It's okay that I get hurt when this happens. It's okay that I quit when somebody else lets me down. It's okay that I don't show up when I'm supposed to be there because I'm tired. Right? Appreciate all those amens. Get ready. New levels involve some challenges. You're not going to get there overnight. Take some challenges on your part. Don't blame other people. Stop blaming other people. Just like your car. You can pick on a car because everybody's got their own car, right? Most, most folks have their, have their own. A few folks, people don't, but most people have their own car. That car is your responsibility. That car is kept the way you want it. Maybe not exactly the way you desire it to be, but it's how it is is how you put it. Get ready. Watch and listen. Forces are at work to pull you back. Watch and listen. There are forces at work to pull you back. The devil loves you staying underneath whatever thresholds that are there. He loves it. This whole kingdom is happy that, that you, know, you have this area of frustration, you have this level of hurt, you have this level of anger, whatever it might be. He's thrilled that that goes on. You have this level of offense that happens on the inside. He's, this is great. He wants to keep you at that area threshold. But watch and listen, because if you try and move out, he's going to try and pull you back in. We used a seafood example before. But if you've gone into a seafood store, they have a barrel of crabs. You know why there's no lid on there? Because the other crabs won't let the other crabs climb out. As soon as that crab sees the other crabs climbing out, guess what they do? They grab hold of them pull them back. You're not getting, if I'm in here, you're staying. <laughs> and they pull them back. You watch them. I just sat there and watched them when I heard that years ago. I'd sit there and watch them. Sure enough, one started trying to get, get on out. They just pull them back. They could just leave there with the top off. Hardly ever. And once in a while, one would get out. Hardly ever, though, did they get out. The other ones just pull them right back in. As soon as they're starting to make a run for it, break for it, get in here. If we're in here, you're in here. And that's about what it is. It's like being in a bucket of crabs. The devil says, you're not getting out of here. I'm just trying to pull you back into it. And give you good spiritual reasons for it too. So get ready. Watch and listen. Forces are at work to pull you back. Trim down. Don't rely on yourself. Gideon had to trim down his army. Because God says, I don't want you guys relying on yourself or saying that you all did it. Get yourself to a point where God has to do it. Don't rely on yourself. And last, let God minister to your spirit. Gideon did the uh, sacrifice and that got burned up. He did the fleece. But then God says, look, I'm going to minister to your spirit going down in there to the camp. And that ministered to his spirit. That put him in faith longer than the rest of the stuff did. And he went out and accomplished some good things. And if you go on, you read chapter 8 and chapter 9, you'll, hear, you'll see some good things. Well, actually, mostly chapter 8. You'll hear some good things coming out of Gideon's mouth. I mean, he's bold. He's got some people that says, you haven't done anything great yet. Oh, yeah, when I come back, I'm taking you guys out. He goes over to the next city. You still haven't done anything great yet. Why should we help you out? Oh, yeah? When I come back, I'm taking you guys out too. And he goes on. And when he comes back, he takes them out. He got bold there for a little while. How do I move beyond my threshold? First off, do what God says, not what I want. Do what God says, not what I want. You got to do what God says. Go into the Word of God. What does the Word of God say to you to do in this area? Do it. And when you get to a place where it's not comfortable, 
where it's tough, it is increasing your threshold. When you have said to God, God, I'm going to do this area of ministry. God, I'm going to work in this area. I'm going to help this out. And somebody else or some situation comes up or something happens and it becomes tough for you to do it. You, instead of getting mad and angry, just understand this. You have the opportunity to increase your threshold. You can't create these things. But they come up. You have the opportunity to increase your threshold. It's up to you. Do you want to do it? I see you have to want to do it. Just because you want to increase your threshold doesn't mean it's going to increase. You have to want to do it. I've told you stories before, me running over cross country. We had a threshold. We could run at the drop of a hat, no thought, no preparation. We could run 8 to 12 miles and not even bat an eye. There's no big deal. But a couple of times, you know, I've wanted to increase that threshold. And one time during the season, I asked my coach, because you had to get special permission to go over the workouts that we were doing. I asked my coach, would, you, would it be all right if I ran 20 miles tomorrow? So I wanted to. I wanted to increase my, my threshold on it. And I knew a 20-mile run, and I asked him, and he gave me permission. I had to get permission. He gave me permission. He said, yeah, go ahead and do it. Went out there and run 20 miles. Now, how many of you have a desire, an overwhelming desire on the inside of you that just wells up and says, I want to go out and run 20 miles? I did. I would have run further, but I knew for the kind of training we were doing, that wasn't the thing to do. But ran 20 miles, I had no trouble with it. You, you can increase your threshold, but you have to desire it. You don't increase your threshold sitting on the sofa. You've got to get out there. You've got to get out there and take on some ministries. You've got to take that ball, no matter how small it looks, no matter how insignificant this thing seems to be, and take hold of that and treat it like it's everything, not just that it's something, and certainly not that it's nothing. You've got to treat this as everything. And I'm doing it for God. And I am not going to let anything get in the way of me doing this. I am going to do it, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it. And then people come along and offend you. People come along and let you down. People come along and they're late. And they're this and they're that. And it drives you. To, ah, Why in the world should I do this? What in the world am I doing all this for? Look at what you have the opportunity to increase your threshold. Do it. You should get glad. How many of y'all, when that happens, and somebody lets you down, how many of you get angry? That, doesn't that stir on the inside of you to get angry? It stirs on the inside of me. It wants to get angry at it. I have to take, take control of my flesh and say, no, I'm not going to get angry. I'm going to increase my threshold. I'm going to increase where I can go. Do what God says, not what I want. Yield to God's vision, not my fears. You are a mighty man of valor. No, 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 not me. Mm-mm. Yield to God's vision of me, not my fears. Bring all things to God through prayer and not begging. Don't sit there and beg God. Bring things to God through prayer. And here's another one. Worship, edify, and appreciate. Worship, edify, and appreciate. Don't murmur, gossip, and complain. Worship, edify, and appreciate. Don't murmur, gossip, and complain. Now, here's a, here's the situation. You are involved in a ministry and you have handed the ball off to somebody in that area and they've taken it and they dropped the ball. How many of you have gotten in the past into murmuring, gossiping, or complaining about that person who dropped the ball? 
That mean, isn't it? It comes easy, doesn't it? Just bingo, just like that. Murmur, gossip, and complain. But if you choose instead to worship, edify, and appreciate, you will increase your threshold. If you murmur, gossip, and complain, your threshold stays right where it is. Or it can even decrease. I'd rather increase it. I'd rather get better. Remember, God does not look at what everyone else did with their talents compared to you. God looks at what you did with your talent. With what He gave you. We all got the kickoff. We all got something put into our hands. We went over that last week. And sometime along the line, the ball is handed off to you. The ball is passed to you. What do you do with it when it's given? Don't sit there and judge it. Say, oh, I don't think this is such a good thing. Such a great thing. Don't do that. Do what God says, not what I want. Yield to God's vision, not my fears. Bring all things to God through prayer, not begging. Worship, edify, and appreciate. Don't murmur, gossip, and complain. If you can do these things and keep yourself in on that, you will see your threshold increase. You can look back on yourself in six months to a year and say, that used to bug me. That used to irritate me. That used to cause me to drop the ball. It doesn't anymore. I'm okay. I'm better than that. And before you were all stuck in blaming other people for things. And now all of a sudden you realized, I don't have to. I don't have to. It's okay. You still want to challenge other people and help them to, to get past where, where they are. And you want to build up trust with people so don't be dropping the ball. <laughs> You want to have, have some trust that's in there with, with people. But it's up to you. Your threshold can be increased. The threshold is a place where something starts. Something starts. A place where faith ends and doubt and unbelief begin. A place where love ends and fear begins place where all these things go on and instead of moving in the direction you were moving you're now moving into something different something new not what you were in before God wants you to walk in faith He wants you to walk in belief He wants you to walk in trust He wants you to walk in knowledge of His Word He wants you to walk in the love of God not these other things a threshold is a place where something begins Make sure that the bad things begin much later. The good things, the word things, begin much sooner. You're in control of that. You're the one who can increase your threshold and change that up. Would you all stand up with me? Father, we know that our thresholds, all of us, we can stand increasing them. We can stand to increase where faith ends and doubt begins. That we can increase the area of faith in our life. We can increase the area of love in our life. We can increase the area of belief in other people. Trust. Forgiveness. All the things that you told us in your word. We can increase the area of peace. So many things we can increase in our life. And Father, we want to do that. We want to walk in the increase and not the beginning of the bad. Help us, Father, to take the thresholds that are in our life and recognize them. And know that it will take effort, but we can change them. And we can get ourselves to be faithful no matter what. That we will be faithful, not faithless. We will be selfless, not selfish. Thank you, Father, for the help that you give us on it. We praise you and we give you the glory. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. Well, people have let you down, drop the ball. I hope you will continue to give them a chance and give them the ball again. Because we've all dropped the ball at some point. But we've got to keep on going and, and trust some more.